You like movies about gladiators? Those men wanted to have sex with me! Great Scott! Nice Bieber. Oh, Cinderella boy. Rambo is a pussy. Come with me if you want to live. Hello, and welcome to Retro Ramble. I'm Charlie McGee. I'm George McGee. And this week, we're going to be going back to the 1980s classic, The Goonies. So, George, where does one start when we go back to a film that means so much to the both of us? Well, um, shall I give uh, give our listeners a brief recap, even though it seems a bit pointless, because I'm sure that everyone and their dog has seen this film. But anyway, I'll, I'll go with a, a brief synopsis. So, uh, in order to save their homes from being turned into a golf resort, a group of misfits set out on a dangerous adventure to find a pirate's hidden treasure, all the while being pursued by a family of criminals known as the Fratellis. And so, George, what are we going to cover in this episode? We're going to do our usual sort of setup. We'll take a look at... Uh, we'll probably start talking about some of our memories, yeah? Yeah, so, um, well, yeah, we'll just do our usual things. So, first memories, uh, background production, and then uh, we'll just jump straight into the film. And, you know, what are the our favourite moments, what works, what, what doesn't? And uh, probably, spoiler alert, uh, there's not very much that goes wrong in this film. It's It's pretty well done. Yeah, and just to add, you know, watching these films before you listen to this podcast is not essential, especially with a film like The Goonies. We're going to talk about how it stands up today and how it's relevant. So, George, have you got the mini discs ready? Um, I'm actually using Laserdisc for this episode. All right, you've moved up. Okay, okay, so we're... Moved down, perhaps, but they look pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, got to get yourself a Philips. I think there was only one company who made them. Anyway, anyway, so we'll cue that up. Ready and go. They call themselves the Goonies. They've stumbled onto a legend. But they're not alone. Chunk, I hope that was your stomach. Discover what they uncover. Rubies and emeralds and diamonds. The lost map. The secret caves. Join the adventure as Steven Spielberg presents The Goonies, a Richard Donner film. So, George, The Goonies, who brought us this amazing cult classic? It's a funny one. Looking at, as the credits rolled up when I started watching this film, the amount of names that came up, I was just like, crikey, there's a lot of talented people involved in this. So... It's directed by Richard Donner, and Richard Donner is uh, is probably one of the most versatile blockbuster directors um, of all time, I would argue. The same man uh, brought us The Omen, Superman the movie, well, Superman 1 and 2, most of, most of uh, Superman 2, but uh, that's a different story. He gave us this film, and he also gave us Lethal Weapon. So he's, um, yeah, he's very, very versatile very you know talented director it's uh produced and story by um a a guy called steven spielberg and <laughs> never heard of him never heard of him and it's written by uh christopher columbus uh no not the man that discovered america um <laughs> it, it's uh chris columbus who is again um got a great uh family film pedigree so he wrote gremlins he um wrote and directed home alone he wrote this film um whilst it's probably seen as one of the weakest uh, installments but he's the man that launched the harry potter franchise so he he directed the first Harry Potter film, so he got that all sort of in motion before he passed it on to a host of other directors that built on on what that world that he created. And and then finally, it's executively produced by Kathleen Kennedy, who is currently head of Lucasfilm, uh, churning out buckets of money uh, for the the Star Wars franchise at the moment, printing their own. Printing their own money and firing directors left, right and centre by the sounds of it. 
and uh, Frank Marshall as well, who I think is is uh, um, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall are uh, married or partners. And Frank Marshall, again, is a very big producer in Hollywood. And he is uh, most recently uh, the, the man responsible for producing uh, the box office giant Jurassic World, which I think until sort of recently was the biggest opening film of all time or biggest you know quickest to get to a billion it seems like that record's broken every every year now or every few months so all in all it's what i would probably call it's like they are the avengers of blockbuster filmmaking you know it's um it's quite a a collection of talent uh behind the camera yeah and you know just what i can say in terms of uh, preparation for covering this film obviously we know the film very well but when i was surfing through amazon i came across the making of a cult classic um which i will be referring to as we go through this and that's definitely worth checking out uh, that's that's on amazon video and one of the first things that stood out for me was something that we obviously wouldn't have been aware of when this film came out as we weren't uh, the cinephiles that we were we were just the kids consuming this film was the anticipation behind this because everyone was like Richard Donner and Spielberg together. I mean, they, they were they were giants of of the time, you know. So it's not just now that you can say those names and say these guys are good. They were proven even back then. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, it, it's interesting to see that. I mean, I don't think Richard Donner's doing as much, uh, and maybe Chris Columbus to a lesser extent, but Spielberg, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall. I'd say they're all still very active and still making, you know, quite an impact. Uh, in Hollywood on, on the blockbuster scene. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's 32 years later, is it? They're still sort of kings of the box office. So George, first memories of, of watching this film? It's a, it's a tough one. I've, uh, I've been racking uh, my brains and I've just, I've seen this film so many times. I, I don't have a definitive memory of where I first saw it. it probably we've, we've mentioned it in the, in the past. It's, Possibly at our, our old next door neighbours, the Glen Dinnings. That's more than likely, especially as it had Corey Feldman, who was uh, the, the Glen Dinnings were a huge fan of uh, Corey Feldman. Who wasn't a fan of Corey Feldman back in the eighties, though, George? You know him and Corey Haim, the two Coreys. What a run they had! What what a run indeed for all of about four years. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's funny you say that because now I think we play, we watched this film. I remember watched this at our place, but yeah, I do have distinct memories. I think. I think the first time I watched this was at the Glen Dinnings. They had an amazing video collection. I think they were in the films and their dad was in the films. They had the setup. And so that's why I think we were, we, we became, it was a, a lot to do with why we got into watching films so much. But that's, that's my recollection. But obviously I remember watching this at home and, and over the years it's, you know, it's a, but I haven't watched it for ages. You know, I watched it recently, obviously in preparation for this, but. It's, you know, it's such a special film. It's very well made. And we were just talking about uh, Richard Donner and Spielberg. Was it the golden age of Spielberg? You know, films like this and E.T., you know, it was it was a great time for these sort of films. Well, yeah, he was uh, hot, you know, the, probably the hottest thing, you know, untouchable by that stage uh, in terms of, yeah, especially that kid-friendly blockbuster. You know, E.T. is a great sort of kindred spirit to this film. Um, you know, there's obviously a, there's a lot of themes, Spielberg themes that carry over into this. And I think there's also um, rumours that whilst he was producing it, he also uh, actually probably directed a bit of it as well. I think it was Sean Astin uh, who said in... in what yeah, he was second it? unit director, yeah. but he stepped in to help uh, me. That's from the making of video. So they that was about time constraints, but, you know, he could do it and he just did it. And that's the type of director he is. Yeah. So, yeah, it's um, it's a funny one. This this film does just, you know, in terms of what we do on this podcast, in terms of Retro Ramble, it is all about going back to the films that we love and that, that lovely, you know, hug that nostalgia offers us. And it seems like this film is just the sort of, you know, complete... What's the word I'm thinking of? You know, this this film is the encapsulation of that. It's this film is is such a great film for nostalgia for that yearning of what it's like to be a kid. You know, the the fun that you, you know the adventures that you go on and that looking for adventure and it's proper wish fulfillment. And you know, 
for kids growing up. And that's why we probably watched it so much. And that's why it's so great to go back and watch it now. It just does, you know, it sort of really grabs you and pulls you in. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's without sounding corny, it's almost quite magical in a way. Well, yeah, I think also because, I mean, we'll talk about this later about how it stands up today and what films are like in terms of the amount of films like this that are still coming out. But what strikes me is that this, because of the the timescales of, of taking a film to be out of the cinema and then to be on video and how long that, that would stay relevant in our lives, that the Goonies were, was a part of our lives and connected to many memories for a long time. And there's also this great thing, which I'm going to call music memory. So you know, like how you have muscle memory where you just remember how to do your body just instinctively remembers how to do something. Yeah. I, I find that with these films because there's so much nostalgia, there's so many memories linked to the soundtracks of these films. Like, um, you know, there's just, just moments in this film where a certain bit of music will kick in and suddenly I'm transported back, you know? So it's, yes, it's the senses and it's all of those things. And yeah, it's, it's a great trip down memory lane. So regardless of when the Goonies came into your life, I think it's, um, it encapsulates that time and very much, you know, it's the, it's the era that we're looking back at. So, um, should we dive in? I mean, we're going to do, we'll do our usual, just, we'll, well zip, yeah, we'll try and zip I mean, as well, we, we, yeah, we, we, we've got there essentially, like that was going to be my first point, you know, you're talking about music and this film has a, a terrific opening. I mean, it's, completely over the top and it's only just watching it again recently um that you see uh, how sort of um unrealistic and you know the fact that you've got this um you know you've got the fratelli brother fran sanchez uh what's he called robert davi uh escaping yep. from from the worst uh guarded prison in the world he knocks out one guard and then he can, and he's out of the prison <laughs> so there's, there's how does he get out at the end uh, it's because i was like all right i, I forgot you know because it's been so long since i watched this i was like Oh yeah, of course. There's the escape thing, and I was like, "Are they both?" And my memory's going, "Are they both the brothers in prison?" And then it's like, "Oh yeah, he's got the thing with the water pipe," mm-hmm. and then he just walks out. I'm like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. He, he, he walks out, and the the other Fratelli brother, um, another a great uh, character actor, uh, Joe Pantolino, or affectionately known as Joey Pants. It'd be easier, I think, if we refer to him for that episode as jo- Joey Pants or Joey P. Yeah, jo- Joey Pants. I mean, I think that's how he's affectionately known in Hollywood. He's the guy that's probably best known for playing uh, Cypher in the Matrix film. And yeah, he's in uh, Memento as well. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I always remember that bit as a kid where he's like doing, pouring the, the gasoline uh, or, <laughs> or, or, or petrol for us, for our UK listeners around the, uh, the car park of the prison. And I actually... Um, watched uh in preparation for this i watched uh cinema sins it's a channel on youtube and it's actually it's it's a it's a bit of a cynical overly cynical thing but it's basically a, a guy that analyzes classic films and points out all the mistakes and errors and the goonies i say that this opening is full of them so yeah why is there no one manning uh, manning the prison the flames that you know, he lights they're about like a foot high and all the police are like, what do we do? What do we do? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there's loads of police in cars chasing after them, firing on this vehicle in a quite busy, small little, well, seaside town. And I'm thinking, that seems a little bit overkill from having a really poorly manned prison to, yeah, a, a full sort of like, you know, almost turning into... um well, it's like in, even in the Blues Brothers, you've got the whole, whole uh, state chasing after them, but no one's really firing on them. But part of that opening, I say it's over the top, It's but it's sort of, it draws you in and it's got that great soundtrack, um, that great yeah. sort of orchestral music. And I um, I looked up, uh, I had to look up the composer because I was like, who is this guy? You know, it's with Spielberg's involvement, you would usually assume it's, it's John Williams, but... I was fairly certain it wasn't John Williams, and it's actually a guy called uh, Dave Grusin, who I've never heard of, but looking at he's done some big films, so he's a composer behind uh, The Graduate, the film Tootsie, and uh, he was Oscar-nominated for his soundtrack for the John Grisham film The Firm. 
it's it's a really iconic soundtrack, and as you say, that just hearing those opening bars of the soundtrack it does just take you back, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean that's what I was going to say. The, the, my first sort of music memory moment was the um, was just a bit with the Mama Fratelli sitting in the car and saying dun dun dun, yeah. and it's like this chase music, and then suddenly my memories kick in and I and it all appears in my head. I know exactly what's coming next, but I'd forgotten the scene and the music jolts me, you know. And um, apparently the story behind why Robert Davi and Joey Pants were selected to be the brothers was that on day one when they first met. Uh, Robert Davi called out Joey Pants on wearing a toupee in real life. Oh, wow. It was like the first time that I met, and he, and he said, is that a, is that a hairpiece? And um, they just started, like, squabbling from the... So from the off, they were frosty with... And um, even in the making of video, you know, Davi's got sunglasses on the entire time. And Joey Pants is saying, yeah, I still don't really see eye to eye with, um, with Robert Davi. And I think that's probably what they brought to the film and the fact he has to jump through the, the sunroof and apparently the um, I don't know where dollar bills fitted into this, but apparently the the fire was supposed to be lit by a flaming dollar bill uh, for some okay. reason, but it just didn't work. And Davi was like, "Why don't we just shoot it?" <laughs> so yeah, but yeah, great opening scene. My only question is when Mama Fratelli says, "Don't worry, you can count on your mum," and she puts it in four wheel drive. It's like. Was the breakout completely scheduled to intercede with a beach 4 by 4 race? Well, again, I think we should put a link, even though I say it's quite cynical, we'll put a link into the Cinema Sins video because, it, yeah, it picks up on all that, like, can you really spark petrol by firing a bullet at it? Yeah. Um, how have they timed the, the prison escape with the, the start of this cross beach 4 by 4 race? There's there's a lot of yeah. coincidences going on, but it's... um. To its strength, you know, it's great. It, uh, it introduces all the, the main characters. So you see Data trying out his, his wonky gadgets. Uh, you've got yeah. Chunk being Chunk. So, yeah. It's great introduction of all the characters. Nice, quick, little beats, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. And um, the, the thing I love, within five, ten minutes, and it sort of it will tie into they don't make them like they used to, we've got drug references, swearing, and dick jokes. You certainly wouldn't get that <laughs> in a, a kid's film these days, a, a PG-rated film. Oh, you idiot! You hold it on upside down! Dork! If God meant to do it that way, you'd all be pissing in your faces! Looks fine to me. Great establishment of the characters, all their quirks and tics. You've got, you know, um, as I say, you've got the good squabbling between the Fratelli brothers, which I really enjoyed. And I forgot about how good that they are together, you know, that sort of fighting. The squabbling between, you know, Josh Brolin and and Sean Astin, uh, Mikey and Brandon. That, you know, it's it's nice that, yeah, it's not just the, oh, I'm, I'm the thuggish older brother and I'm going to bully you. There is, you can sense that genuine affection. Yeah, it's, it's really well done. I mean, is that the Spielberg effect? That's what I felt when I saw this. I was like, he really... He really gets it right, you know. He get he does he hits the sweet spot. You you cannot say that it's. I'm sure there's it's when it comes at the end of the film. You're like, oh, it's too much corny. It's too cheesy, and and it, and you could accuse him. But I don't know. Just when you when you're getting through the start, of these films, it seems to strike just the right balance. Well, yeah, I think uh, yeah, a lot of credit is is due to Richard Donner that they you know he's working uh, with practically a, a bunch of unknowns, a bunch of child actors that have never been in a feature film before so even josh brolin even though he's from sort of you know his dad's J uh, james brolin um so he's from sort of cinematic royalty as as such this was his first feature film um and, and all the other kids you know obviously uh the uh, jonathan key kwan i think it's pronounced the guy who plays data was um short round in uh, temple of doom um hey, where's he now indeed i think you know I, I think i read somewhere that he is involved with he's like a martial arts uh, choreographer for films i think he's still in films but he works you know behind the scenes we will uh, find out we will put it on the blog we will find out well yeah no there's um there's a great feature we'll put on the blog for uh, empire did a reunion at a uh, 25 year reunion with all the cast and I think most surprisingly is the guy that plays uh, Chunk is <laughs> lost all the weight and he's now like a high-powered entertainment lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I saw that on the making of video. I was like, what's happened to Chunk? And why is that Why is that Samwise Ganji from Lord of the Rings keep talking like he was in the film? <laughs> I didn't even... Like Samwise Ganji wasn't in this film. There was a little kid called Mikey 
And then there's a guy called Samwise Ganji. George, I mean, are they are they are they related? Is he speaking for? I mean, it can't be the same guy. <laughs> well, that's it. I was uh, I was telling people uh, there somebody some friends were asking, you know, oh, what you what film you covering next on the podcast? And I was like, oh yeah, we're covering the Goonies. And they were like, you know, sort of typical response. Oh, I love that film. And I was like, yeah, you know, if you think it's actually got some uh, people that child child actors that still working today, obviously. Josh Brolin is is still pretty hot, g- getting a lot of work and in big films at the moment. I said, uh, but yeah, a lot of people forget you've got uh, Sean Astin, who is yeah best known as Mr. Frodo, uh, <laughs> S- S- Samwise Ganji, and and uh, my friends are like, oh Christ, yeah, it is, isn't it? So yeah, it's, was he the uh, same guy? Was he sorry? Was he the same guy who was in Toy Soldiers as well? That yeah, other? yeah. So he did uh, Toy Soldiers. Uh, I think what else did he do? I made a note of it somewhere, or maybe I did not. But yeah, he was in Toy Soldiers, and I think he was in something else that was a classic film that we sort of watched uh, growing up. Toy Soldiers is the one where it's like terrorists take over a boarding school, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) It's kind of a believable film. I think everyone should seek it out. (laughs) And hasn't it got Lewis Lewis Gossett Jr.? Oh, no, that was the other film I was trying to remember. He was in in Memphis Bell. Ah, right. Okay, yeah, that 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 chick flick about World War Two. Okay, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I haven't seen that film in a while, but I remember it being kind of good. So, yeah, we've we've established all the characters. One thing I had to flag up: what's with the convoluted gate system at their house? So I could not. I mean, the amount of work that must have gone in to set that up. What, what was? Is that a homage to something? Is it? Um, well, they're saying that's uh, somewhere I read saying it's obviously foreshadowing to one of the traps that they get involved in later in the film. But that still doesn't explain who built it. Why, why did you build it? And the amount of work that goes into it. You so you've got a a bowling ball that scares a chicken into laying an egg which then blows up a balloon, which then pulls the gate back. Do they have to reset no, it? No, which then sets off, a, sets off a sprinkler. <laughs> of course, it sets off a sprinkler. And so do they have to set it up every time somebody comes, you know, to let somebody in? Is it a, a once-a-day thing? It just seems it's great, it's quirky, but what's the point? <laughs> hey, Chunk. When you on your way in, can you bring in the bowling ball and set it up for the next person? <laughs> and pick up the egg as well. It, I was just a bit sort of uh, distracted by that, saying, "Yeah, that's that's really fun," but I'm I'm not sure why it's in there. The other thing that I picked up on on what, rewatching it this time is I love the fact that the sort of recurring joke that Mikey mispronounces everything, but I yeah. never noticed that his mum does it the same as well. Oh, I didn't I didn't notice that when she's doing that. Is that when when she's going around when she's going around the house? I think it's when um, yeah she's telling Brand you know Josh Brolin's character off for something. And he's like, don't you mean this, mum? She's like, that's what I said, Brandon. So, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a nice little uh, subtle sort of tick that they've put in there. But uh, it's also got the – there's a great uh, thing that I forgot about and I'm sure we used to – I'm sure you've said it to me in the past is that line from Brandon when he's they tie him up with his uh, 80s muscle stretcher spring thing when he's like, I'm going to hit you so hard. When you wake up, your clothes are going to be out of fashion. Yeah, it's a great line. <laughs> so then we get into they get on their adventure. Um, but I don't know whether now's the time to talk about product placement alert. So much pop culture, uh, pop culture references as well. It's like they're trying to date the film. Well, yeah, there's there's the bit where he, Bran says, oh, I have to get to the store and buy Pampers for, for all us kids. Seems like everyone's wearing Nike shoes. Um, and even they even managed to uh, feature Cindy Lauper's music video for the film. Yeah, so not just plugging the music on the soundtrack, but also actually showing the music video and plugging the fact that MTV is massive. Yes, yes, indeed. So we get into that classic Spielberg sort of motif of kids on their bikes going through the woods, um, which will obviously will uh, we'll, uh, mention the Stranger Things sort of uh, homage uh, later on. But then we're introduced to sort of, well, a minor villain of uh, sleazy Troy. How do we know Troy's evil? It's because he's wearing a country club visor. 
Oh, amazing, amazing wardrobe on that guy. And he is such a douche. He's <laughs> total douche. But yeah, first sign of evil, it's that lovely country club visor. He's rich, he's evil, he can't be trusted. And then, yeah, they're on their adventure. You're meeting the... I don't know who's uh, more terrifying in this film. Is it Mama Fratelli or is it Sloth? That that woman always terrified me as a child. The only thing we serve is tongue. <laughs> you boys like tongue? Yeah, I think Sloth de- de- definitely just... I think it's the presentation of them, you know? And I think... As I was talking before about how I think Spielberg always gets the right balance of stuff. So they are believable criminals, but they are, from a child's point of view, you know, they they should be probably a little bit more terrifying than they are. They're still a bit sort of like cuddly, if you know what I mean. Yeah, it, no, it's, it's it's a very fine balance between them being terrifying. I mean, you, you know, one point you've got the brothers squabbling over pizza, pointing guns at each other, and it's hilarious. And then the next, they're threatening to feed a child's hand into a blender. So you know, it's 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 a fine line that uh, Donner manages to balance in this. But that's what I like. I like the the the, the balancing act that's going on, and I love the banter the banter between these young actors that they the performance they're able to get out where. Mouth is like teasing Chunks, so he'll open the door, and how like Chunks been following this, and like everyone's got their own little role to play. It's just I don't know how they did this, whether or not they got the kids to spend time with each other, but it all just seems so natural. All the relationships really work well, and so when you when you when you throw them into this setting with this this shack, you know, which they apparently they filmed during a hurricane uh, because the the weather was so up and down in the area. But when you throw them in with the Fratellis, it's it's you. Everybody's been introduced. Everyone's got their role, and even the Fratellis are. So then you're in the film, aren't you? Yeah, it's it's weird how you um you just remember certain things. Like I remember them getting served that like brown water and just yeah, just the random things like the freezer full of ice cream with the the stiff uh, in, and yeah, it's just all the sort of things that sort of yeah, it is borderline. You've got some nice little sort of family-friendly scares in there. Yeah, it's a a great setup, and then they're, they're quickly on their adventure. I don't know if there's... Um, it's probably not going to mean anything to our listeners, but there's one thing I picked up on this, uh, Charlie, when uh, Mama Fratelli, when uh, Mikey's sort of um, trying to find the the entrance and he has to go at the... says, you know, he needs to go at the toilet. She goes, stay to the right! Stay to the yeah. right, um, <laughs> which is a, a joke that's uh, played in one of our favourite films, uh, Loaded Weapon. But, so for fans of Loaded Weapon, you, you'll appreciate that. You kind of sort of forget that Chunk is separated from, from the main bunch, but that really allows for some some great uh, comic potential. So uh, even though I've seen this film numerous times, I was you know laughing, all giggling all over again when... The Fratellis are interrogating him and they're getting him to tell everything and like, you know, from from the very start. And he's just literally telling them every single story about every every wrong thing he did, uh, about pushing his sister down the stairs and blaming it on the dog and pretending to be sick in the cinema. And and I was just, yeah, wetting myself because it is it's a you know great comic timing from uh, from the kid that plays him, Jeff Cohen. In fourth grade, I stole my Uncle Max's toupee and I glued it on my face when I played Moses in my Hebrew school play. In fifth grade, I knocked my sister Edie down the stairs and I blamed it on the dog. Still so typical of what would come out of a child in that position. Yeah, and um, but yeah, it's 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 a great sort of it's a very well written character because everyone had that mate at school that was a complete bullshitter and was always telling these. Um, completely fabricated, unbelievable stories. But we lived in a in a magical time before the internet, where you couldn't check if these stories were true or not. And uh, yeah, I really liked the uh, cheeky Gremlins reference that you know when Chunk's telling his story to the police, it's like, oh yeah, and just about the time you told us about those those little monsters that got wet and multiplied. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there's a, a good little uh, in joke there. But yeah, I, th- I think there's um, we- we've covered a lot of what makes the film great, and you-, you you've got all the different sort of the traps in there that have that Indiana Jonesy type feeling, you know, all the sort of the falling rocks and yeah. uh, floor that falls through, and then you get to that sort of uh, the big sort of set piece with the pirate ship, which apparently, and you'll you'll probably 
divulge more on. They built a full working pirate ship on set uh, and hid it from the kids um, to get like a genuine reaction from them. I love that. Just tricks like that. The fact that there's like, no, we're going to go and do it. And I think this links back to the, the powerhouse that was Donner and Spielberg at the time. It was like, you know, we're going to do this. And we're gonna. They they did tricks with the budget, like they picked the town, you know, the uh, whatever it's called. A story. Uh, but it is a great setting. But they said they had access to the beach. They were able to build this boat, and they had this, you know, this uh, this location that was was truly amazing. And to get that reaction out of the kids, it was a great little trick. I don't know if if this is true or not, but I read that. They, you know, they made, um, you know, that final bit before they get down to the pirate ship. They go through all those like water slides and stuff. And apparently, once the they'd finished filming, the crew would all like have a go on the water slides at the end of every day as a sort of like a, a stress relief thing. Yeah, it looks awesome. I mean, we haven't even touched on. I realize we haven't touched on sloth much, really. I mean, yeah, he's terrifying. He's he's a tragic figure. And uh, I don't know about you, but I really can't see you getting away with a character like Sloth in a film today. You try to make your your frosting look a little bit rugged. Chocolate. A little bit. <laughs> Chocolate. They just picked a random guy. Apparently he was like a, an, an American football player and gave him this like deformed animatronic head to make him this like grotesque sort of de- deformed person. It's like... I think that's a little bit uh, on the nose there. Well, yeah, it's uh, it, it was amazing because obviously they did, they show the prosthetic work and the makeup in the making of video. Yeah, and yeah, the guy's enormous to begin with, and then it was like, and he had to put this thing on each time. And when they were in the water, that they were like saying, they were saying to the kids, you know, don't get water on sloth because whenever he gets water on his face, you have to go back to makeup. <laughs> you don't get water on sloth, you'll make him very angry. <laughs> And, you know, it was it was stuff like that. But each time he got water on him, he had to go back in and it was like four hours in makeup. But this guy was um, this guy was 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 a legendary footballer. And but I get the feeling that the guy passed away. The he guy did, played yeah. Football. Yeah. And I was, I was looking into this and I think he passed away um, quite uh, not not too long after this. I think it was like 89, maybe. Well, yes, they're talking about it in this. There's a few lines in this making of which kind of date it because they're like saying, you know, nowadays with like latest technology like DVDs, <laughs> you know, so mm. I think this was obviously made at some point during the 90s. But yeah, they're all talking about him in with a lot of reverence and, you know, in past tense. So yeah, but, uh, but, uh, I, but he'll always be remembered. Well, what he'll what he will always be remembered for, and it's probably the reason that uh, getting back to my uh, product placement, that every person from uh, Britain knows what a baby Ruth is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. So yeah, ends with that great set piece on the boat with uh, with one eyed Willie, um, and I'm saying that with a straight face. More more sort of uh, booby traps or, or booty traps, as as Data calls them. Then they, the thing that I realized this time is you've got the ending on the beach and the evil uh, country club uh, developers turn up, you know, sign, sign the paperwork. And then they discovered that Mikey's got this uh, bag full of rubies and jewels in his marble bag that's going to save them. And then I always remember this as a kid, you know, the, the ship breaks out of the cave and sails off into the sunset. And they all just sit there waving at it, looking at it majestically. And it's like, I was saying to myself... That ship is full of loot. Why is nobody going after it? It's like, we've got this tiny bag of jewels. Why is nobody... Get get a boat. We're going after it. Because who's... One, who's steering the ship? But why aren't they going after it? Well, there's something about this... There's something about the filming at the end. I mean, I'm not going to even talk about the, the octopus. You can follow up on that in a moment. But apparently that was added... The scene on the beach at the end was added... Was added at the end. So... Or that that thing of the boat, it was all well. You you tell us, George, because it's a disconfigured. There's a lot of talk about there was a thing with an octopus. Yeah. So, so what happened? So there's because um, there's even a scene at the end where they're reunited with their parents and they're all talking about their sort of their adventures. And Data goes, "Oh yeah," and there was this giant octopus, and just carries on talking. And you're like, "Hang on, there wasn't a scene with a giant octopus." But they did film a scene. So when the kids. Uh, come out of the water chutes uh, and land in front of the pirate ship 
there was supposed to be a dramatic scene where this giant octopus turned up and started grabbing the kids. And I think Data managed to like squirt something or fire some sort of gadget that scares off the octopus. Um, but I think it was one of those, those things that it looked, the uh, animatronics for the octopus looked so ropey, they just decided to cut it out. But bizarrely, it somehow turned up on like a TV edited version of the film when they played it on American TV like five years later. There was a version that included that scene. Um, so some people have seen it. And obviously there's that line in the film that confuses everybody. But yeah, the, the sort of cast and crew sort of joke about it because it's sort of become that sort of legendary thing of, oh, what what, oh, what happened with the octopus? Yeah, well, Donna says that it was his call. But from the way he talks about it and what you've just said, it was a last minute editing decision. So it kind of explains there was probably a version of it going around. Obviously, it was a TV edit. Yeah. Um, but the way he described it, he said, yeah, it was just, how did he describe it? I think it was almost like a dig at whoever designed it. You know, he mm. wasn't saying that it was a bad decision to try and do it. It was like it was a poorly conceived mechanism is how yeah. he describes it. So it just didn't didn't look good enough. Um, but I remember thinking that that line that Data comes out with about an octopus, that's another heart back to kids have a tendency to embellish certain things. So I, I, I think you, they can kind of, I think that's why they left it in. They were like, you know, he's just excited and he's like saying there was loads of this and there's pirates and there was traps and yeah, there was an octopus. So it, it kind of makes it, yeah, that, that very far fetched thing. But, um, no, the only thing I'd like to say about the ending about how Rosalita saves the day, and I'm just wondering what President Trump would think of um, Rosalita arriving in this country. As uh, you know, is she is she got a visa? She doesn't speak any English, you know. But some, there's that great com- com- uh, comedy of the, with uh, Mouth explaining to her that this is where you store the drugs, and there's um, yeah, there's the, the the dad is a sexual deviant and keeps all of his toys in the loft. <laughs> and that if she misbehaves, she'll be. It's brilliant. It's some brilliant. I forgot that how funny that bit is, and it really shows Feldman. You know how how good an actor he is. Well, yeah, it's it's hilarious. But again, that's what I was sort of uh, referencing. When I was talking about in the first five ten minutes, you've got drug references, you've got swearing, and yeah, I I was reading about this apparently in the Spanish version. Uh, I think it's he's talking Italian to her. So, oh, okay. so they, they they flipped it, but yeah. In in talking of the uh, you know the the jewels, um, I've got a boring. Well, as it could be boring, but a piece of trivia from uh, from the the lovely people at IMDb. So I've said you know obviously they've they've got this bag of jewels, but then they let this ship sail off into the sunset full of treasure. Uh, but according to international maritime salvage law, the rights to a salvage <laughs> vessel and its contents go to person or persons who first successfully bring something off the vessel in question. So ah. since Mikey brought the jewels off the ship, the ship and everything on it belong to him, apparently according to maritime salvage law. But he's not greedy. He's not greedy. He's not greedy. But yeah, I mean, then I suppose we are veering into sequel territory. So this film, <laughs> this film has been mooted a sequel, a Broadway show, a animated spin-off. Um, I think they talked about at one point it was going to be the kids of the original kids. You know, they were going to, I think it was even up until a few, like two or three years ago, Richard Donner said, oh yeah, it's going to happen. We've got a script and we're working on it. But he's confirmed again recently saying no it's not going to happen but you know i like to think what if and you know that moment when you've got everyone's reunited on the beach and sloth goes up to sorry chunk goes up to sloth and he says you're going to come and live with me now you're going to come and live with me and my family (laughs) so for me the real sequel that i want and i think everyone else does i want to spin off the further adventures of chunk and sloth you know maybe a sitcom they could get into like different adventures you know they get back together they're living in the city this is this is what i'm thinking so like chunk's still doing the bullshit and sloth has a heart of gold and so maybe maybe Sloth could be helping Chunk get the ladies. You know, he's 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 the one who's got the chat and he's giving him help. But he's beautiful. He's ugly on the outside, but he's beautiful on the inside. It could be that type of 
that type of buddy feel. Let's make it happen, George. Yeah, I mean, uh, for, for me, I've just got like, it's almost like the opening of Commando. You could see like Sloth carrying really heavy things, but then all of a sudden he's having an ice cream with Chunk and he gets the ice cream in his face. <laughs> Um, he's scaring people, but then chunks, you know, reassuring them all. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think there's there's a lot to it. And um, according to the novelization of the film, it confirms that uh, chunks' parents actually do adopt sloth and going as far to throw him a bar mitzvah. So you know, I think there's a lot of potential there. <laughs> That's awesome, but I do love that actor. What's it, what do you say his name was? The chunk guy. It's Jeff. Uh, Jeff Cohen. Yeah, because I think he is so on in the making of video. He's so on the nose about it. I mean, he pretty much on the DVD extra. He, like he says, you know, I, I I'm so glad to be part of this film. I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for being chosen for that. You know, so and then there's there's just one bit in the making of video where you see it's like a case of the two Corys, and I'm not talking about Corey Haim. Just that there's some footage of Corey, and then there's some footage of him later, and you're like. Have you lost weight or had face work? I don't know if there's like... Has somebody been to rehab? There's something going on there. It it just looks a bit weird. But yeah, and uh, you know, we mentioned earlier, I do remember reading the Empire special um, when it was, was it 25 years? Yeah, and um, seeing pictures of them all and how they'd all changed and... um, as the making of calls itself the making of a, of a cult classic. And, and it is, and what is fascinating is, and I don't think, think this is arrogance on Donna's part, but Richard Donner came out and he said that he knew when he made it, that it was going to be a classic. And I think that's just, he said, I'd made a few films. I made, I'd done this, I'd done that, but I could just, I just had the working with Steven and the energy that we got from the kids and the performances. Um, he says that was one of the reasons we had to take out the octopus because I felt everything else was so top draw. Mm. Well, no, he so. said uh, as part of that uh, Empire reunion thing, there's a, a short uh, YouTube uh, video of of them on like uh, where they all meet up and uh, they're interviewing uh, Donna and he admits he goes. Um, he says to the interview, he goes, um, don't tell the kids this, but it's um, the greatest uh, memory of my life working on this film. He goes, you know, it's the best experience on any film I've done. Um, which, you know, I say for the man that made Superman the movie, um, made, um, you know, All lethal, the lethal, weapons. Uh, lethal Weapons, he made uh, Scrooged. And yeah, he's uh, he's got quite a, a, uh, a back catalogue of great films. Um, I think that says a lot. You did mention two Corys, and that leads us into regular feature Coulda, Woulda, Shoulda. There wasn't many uh, alternative casting options for this film. However, the other Corey that we talk about, so in the 80s slash early 90s, there was the, the two Corys that most famously appeared in The Lost Boys. So you've got Corey Feldman, who was in this, and you also have Corey Haim. Corey Haim actually auditioned for the role of Mouth and lost out to Corey Feldman, but that's how they met. They met at the audition together, and that's where they started their lifelong friendship. So there yeah, you go. I'm- and, and went on to make such classics as License to Drive, Dream a Little Dream, and then obviously, yeah, The Lost Boys. But maybe, unless you're friends with the Glenn Dinnings, you probably don't know the two Corys as well as George and I. Let's just say that. <laughs> Spent a lot of time watching those films, uh, whether we wanted to or not. I think we just should uh, close it by saying, well, I think we've we've both sort of confirmed does this film still hold up? Yes, definitely. When I watched it uh, the other day, and I suppose it's a bit of a depressing point, but I, I didn't check my phone once when I was watching the film. It really zips along. It really, you know, uh, engages you. Yeah, you were, you were engaged. Yeah. Um, me too. You know, uh, maybe I think it's it's difficult to separate the nostalgia, but for me, I'm in the zone and I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm in my head. I'm in this like dreamy memory sort of thing, but I'm not leaving the film when I'm watching it, watching a classic like this. And um, yeah, it just, it makes me, I mean, it's the the issue with nostalgia, you know, it's sort of, it's that, that longful, that, that pain of longing as, as we've talked about in the past, but why don't they make films like this anymore? You know, it's, I don't want to, you know, sound like a broken record because we talk about the, you know, the current uh, state of the film industry and how much of a hold it has. It's all about that, that brand, that name recognition, that franchise property, but you know, they don't make classic uh, kids films like these anymore. You you know, you look over the highest grossing blockbusters over the past 20 years and it's the 
top 20, top 30, they're all either comic book films, animation, so like Shrek, Frozen, Despicable Me. And the, the only thing that you've really got close is, um, ironically, it's Pirates of the Caribbean, a film about pirates and treasure. But there's nothing, where are all the movies, the kids' movies about kids going on adventure? That's the, the thing that I think's sad thing about it. You know, it's, you know, it's a film that, the reason this film is, close to so many people's hearts is that wish fulfillment is that could have been that could be us you know i could see myself getting into an adventure like that yeah it's that's what i was talking about the spielberg spielberg effect so you have this thing that he just creates where they do look like you know regular type people but you as you say wish fulfillment or you can you can empathize you can see that sort of as you say that that brother dynamic having a friend like that um, the pressures, the fat family pressures interceding with, you know, uprooting your life and having to move, those sort of things. You know, he gets it spot on, but you're, you're, you're right. You know, these, this was, that's why I asked the question, was this a golden era for, uh, not just kids films, but for Spielberg and, and films of the like with, um, did he do the last, what was it, um, Last Starfighter and, or Flight the Navigator? Those, those sort of 80, those were kids films or, and there was Gremlins and there was Back to the Future. And yeah, you, I think maybe it's gone down the route of animation because cynically it's what works. It's what probably makes the most profit. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a real shame. I mean, the, um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that's gone on to inspire. It's been inspired by the Goonies or it's been homage, but the, um, the most, the only one I can think of recently is a film I watched on, I think it's Netflix recently called, uh, Project Almanac, which is a bit like a mixture of the Goonies meet across with Back to the Future. So it's about, it's all done. Um, the most annoying thing is, is like a found footage film, but it's about these bunch of like young kids, well, sort of, well, young teenagers. I should say that discover this time traveling technology. So it's all that wish fulfillment. They go uh, back in time and win the lottery and become popular at school. And there's some really nice beats in there, but ultimately it's it's flawed by there's some terrible plot holes as as uh, it can happen with a time travel film. And the found footage style doesn't work. But that's one of the the few films that I can think of that tries to do that sort of that template of you know kids on an adventure and has that trying to recapture some of that Spielberg magic uh, and obviously there was um, Super 8 by J.J. Abrams I think that was even produced by Spielberg but that yeah, has yeah. definitely involved with that yeah um, I haven't watched that since it was released I, I'm actually quite tempted after you know reacquainting myself with the Goonies again to actually go back and watch Super 8 and, uh, you know, we can't really um, finish this podcast without talking about Stranger Things because that is, you know, what? yes, it's a huge, um, obviously, uh, Stranger Things is, is a great homage to not just this, but yeah, E.T., Stephen King, so many sort of 80 things. And yeah, it's weird when I was watching, you know, that bit where they first, you know, are cycling through the woods. I just couldn't help thinking of Stranger Things, um, probably because it's the most result I've watched it fairly recently. And bizarrely enough, uh, I saw um, that Sean Astin, the guy who plays you know Mikey and Samwise Ganji from Lord of the Rings, is actually uh, going to appear as a, a recurring character in the second series of Stranger Things. So that's a a nice little further sort of homage there. Great, and shows that they're self-aware. Oh yeah, totally. Totally. I mean, I think they've the makers of that have been quite open with their their inspirations uh, for for that show. But yeah, I'm uh, I'm definitely looking forward to to series two of that. I think that's out later this year. Well, it was so much fun to go back and watch this. It was I had I, as I said, I had fun watching the making of, which I strongly advise people um, to check to check out because it's funny you you hear these these crazy stories of what happened. Like apparently um, Spielberg arranged. There's a bit where Corey's doing the about the water pressure, yeah, and he wants to get a certain reaction out of him, and so what he did was he arranged for Michael Jackson to visit the set, <laughs> and and he basically told him just before he had to deliver that license, Michael's just arrived and he came in. So like there was the, there was that, and there was the thing that they didn't tell the kids about the boat. So some very very clever tricks, and and when you see as I say you see Davy and um, Joey Pants 
just talking about how they got the parts because they didn't like each other. Um, I, I love all that stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I don't think we've, we've, we haven't gone into too much detail, but this is just such a great film. It's, uh, it's so enjoyable to go back and watch. It's like a warm blanket and it's not a film you can tire of very easily, I don't think. And I, th- I think, yeah, um, yeah, we've we've pretty much covered it in detail. But I think it it's something that you could, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to introducing to to my kids when they're the right age. I think it it still holds up as a classic adventure story. So yeah, you know, I I think that's that's the strength of the film that it stands the test of time. And I think I'd recommend it to yeah any kids today to watch. And it's and it's another reminder as to what safe pair hand Steven Spielberg is. He gets great actors. He gets good performance. Sorry, he gets great performances of any actor, and he strikes the right sort of balance between. He really knows how to push the limits of where to go and how scary it can be, how corny it can be, how exciting it can be, and how realistic it can be. I think, and it's a reminder to me because I can't. I think he's he's changed his style. He's got older, and he, he had that. As I say, he had that run during the eighties, and you know he's still obviously one of the. He'll go down in history as one of the greatest movie directors of all time. But this was really a real sweet spot for him. These this this era of eighties films was uh, amazing. Yeah, I was I was thinking I because I saw um, Spielberg's you know take on the BFG recently, and yeah, I was it's. It's not terrible, but it's not it's not amazing. It's uh, it does it feels a bit like I suppose it's a bit like uh, Tim Burton and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It seems like it's you know a dream partnership, but then in reality, it seems like a bit of a missed opportunity. So whilst it's enjoyable, as I know, there was just something about the BFG film recently because I was like, oh yeah, it's great to see Spielberg back doing a kids film. But yeah, something a little bit off. He, he, I don't know if he's maybe should stick to the more serious stuff these days. But uh, maybe it was just too much of a reliance on on CGI. Maybe that was it. Possibly. Possibly. Um, but yeah, I think uh, I think we should uh, round it up there. I think um, if you haven't seen Goonies recently, uh, go out and seek it out. That was the Goonies, and we will be back next month. And we will be confirming what we're going to do. We've got we've got a feel for what we're going to cover next, George. Would you say? Well, I mean, yeah. There's yeah. Being summer, I think we should do a blockbuster. And as people probably know who know me too well, um, I have a bit of an interest in Batman. And a key film for me growing up was Tim Burton's uh, Batman, the original Batman from 1989. So I think uh, yeah, I think we're going to we'll talk about that. I'm totally on board with that. I think, you know, obviously it's the summer. There's a lot of comic book films coming out. This goes back then. And I think it's also just a nice, gentle nod of the hat to uh, Adam West, who uh, recently passed away. You filthy criminals. That The 60s Batman, we're not, we're not covering that. We are actually covering the 1989 Tim Burton film. But as I say, it's true, isn't it, George? It's just, you know, a great, a great actor. Uh, who's who's passed on? Yeah, I mean, I um, I wrote a little uh, a minor few words about uh, Adam West. Yeah, I say I'm a big Batman fan, and it was quite sad news to hear. And um, you know, it's similar to to Roger Moore. He seemed like a, a genuinely lovely person, and uh, everyone sharing you know some some treasured memories of him. So. Yeah, ch- check out uh, my uh, my little sort of piece on on the blog. Um, but I'm sure we will touch on uh, Adam West uh, when we talk about Batman 1989 because I think it it sort of goes hand in hand. It's a reason why that film was sort of a a reaction to the the camp 60s version. Yeah, and and gave us Jack Nicholson, Michael Keaton, and so much more. So look forward to that next. Uh, in our next episode. Uh, for this episode, I've been Charlie McGee. I've been George McGee. And we hope you've enjoyed that, and we'll see you next time. Check us out on uh, retroramble.blog. Yes, sorry, and of course, all of our social media channels on Facebook, on Twitter, and on Instagram. We're, no, we're still not on Instagram. I know, but I'm still just going to tell people to try and find us. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.